Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me newly minted Dr. Miguel Varela Rodriguez, adjunct professor at the Department of Sociology and Social Work at the University of Valladolid in Spain, associate with Conciliation Resources and former advisor at Mediateur. His work lies at the intersection of piecework and visual media, and he's just told me he doesn't like speaking, so I'm very excited to have him here on a podcast with me. So welcome, Miguel. Hi, Lara. It's a pleasure to be here and wonderful pronunciation of all those Spanish words. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. <laughs> Exciting. All right. Look, I'm really happy to have you here as well. I won't be speaking Spanish in the podcast because I feel like that's a whole other series. But I want to jump straight in and ask you about this doctoral research you've just finished because I understand it was to do with imagery and social media. So what was it actually about? Yeah, no, that's the basis of it. It's primarily about images of cancer on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really a project dedicated to seeing how we can investigate images in social media. And the reason that I did that was that I felt a lot of the work that we do on social media is about text and how we write and how we communicate through text. And I wanted to see, well, is there something else that we do? Because I think that a lot of the content we consume in social media, apart from video, are images. Those are the things that stick with us. And so I found that the topic of cancer was a very good topic to explore this because number one, it's got a very, very clear visual identity. Mm -hmm. We all sort of have images of what the cancer patient looks like, especially when we think of patients of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And number two, because I just felt that a personal impulse to work on that topic so what I did was I looked into Instagram, see what images are there that mention words related to cancer, mm -hmm. see how I could access them and how I could study them. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, try to identify a series of what we call visual discourses, common images or images that we commonly produce to talk about a specific topic, in this case, cancer. Interesting. And so you must have had to filter out a lot of star sign related content, right? If you're going for hashtag cancer. Yeah, yeah, no, that was one of the problems. And it's a typical problem when you're dealing with social media is, is what is and what is not relevant. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, when it came to things related to the cancer sign, it was quite easy because there were lots of memes, lots of very visually identifiable images that did not relate to cancer. But I also found another kind of image that was, let's say, jokes about cancer. Mm -hmm. Not about people who have cancer, but about the prospects of having cancer. And those having to do mainly with tobacco and smoking. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you do have to do a lot of filtering, unfortunately. And this is actually making me really curious because you've just described the visual discourse of cancer patients and what that can look like. I mean, is this whole tobacco cancer discourse another way of portraying cancer visually? Well, yeah. See, there are many different discourses of cancer, and I, would, I typically categorize them between discourses used by organizations, discourses used by patients, discourses used by, let's say, the public. So those mm -hmm. who are not working on cancer and those who do not suffer from cancer, whether it's on their bodies or mm -hmm. in their social circles. And then we also have 
discourse is dependent on the types of emotions that we want to generate, positive or negative, and even on what we want to achieve with those discourses. So if it's just to express ourselves, if it's to show support, or if it's to mitigate certain behaviors that, that we know are related to cancer. And so when it comes to those last ones, I do see lots of images that are meant to create fear. So mm -hmm. it's images of people who smoke and then have cancer, that type of thing. But yeah. They're very different, all of those discourses, and they're quite complicated to separate from each other. Mm. And so let's go back then to the visual identity of cancer patients, right? Because you just said that they were really distinct in how they're portrayed, and you said particularly breast cancer patients. Mm. So what are the things we associate with, with breast cancer images? Well, when you look back at the literature and what's been done since the 70s, there's been quite a bit of... A, pushback against a certain image of a breast cancer patient who is a, a very feminine, very happy, typically beautiful woman with makeup, right? Mm -hmm. And so since the 70s, I would say there's been a lot of production in terms of academic research, but also activist work to try and portray different images of a breast cancer patient from women who have suffered from a mastectomy to women who just do not identify with that whole discourse of let me be feminine and let me fight this cancer, right? And so those discourses are more inclusive. But what I see is that they stay within a small realm, which is the realm of activism, the realm of actual patients who then make their voice heard. But when you look at commercial campaigns, those campaigns that are meant to support research or to support patients in general, they still deploy that image. And, and this has been ongoing since, at, at the very minimum, since the 1970s. And it doesn't seem like it's a stopping. Except when you look at the communications of cancer-related organizations. So here in Spain, we have a Spanish Society Against Cancer who are now trying to generate a whole different image, being very conscious of this, right? That we, we have to portray cancer in all its all of its experience, not just one experience that also aligns with these courses that are fairly standardized. Mm. I find it really curious that you just mentioned that even within the activist portrayals of breast cancer and images of breast cancer patients, it's still about reclaiming femininity or being feminine. And that, of course, excludes images of men with breast cancer, right? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it's about reclaiming femininity or, or it's, it's about discussing what that means, right? So yes, mm -hmm. it is about reclaiming it, but it's about portraying women as diverse as women are, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the work of Joe Spence, for example, who was a photographer who suffered from breast cancer, she typically showed herself or she pictured herself with a lot of inscriptions written by hand on her chest. Mm -hmm. questioning the ownership of her breasts and saying, mm -hmm. well, is this a medical product? Is this a product of, of society? Is this a commercial? Is this me? Mm -hmm. And when you look, for example, also at the work of Matushka, who suffered from a breast cancer and was mastectomized, she was the first woman ever in the U.S. to be presented as a mastectomized woman mm -hmm. in a magazine cover. And this was in the 90s, in the early 90s, and it generated lots of steam because people were quite angry that the New York Times would be showing such an image. Yeah. So it is about having that discussion. And 
let's say, taken back that identity, right, from the commercial image that was purely, it was based on pink, it was based mm -hmm. on makeup, it was based on the smile, and there was no room for anything else. It's like, oh, I'm so happy I have something that might kill me. <laughs> like, what a great outcome. Yeah, but, but look, there's also, and I've struggled with this as I was writing and, and doing my research, because that's known as the discourse of survivorship, right? The mm -hmm. idea that if you face it with optimism and with hope, you have a better prospect. And it does help a lot of people because it provides you with hope for the future. And it, it helps you get up in the morning and say, let me continue. Let me have my breakfast. Let me stand up. Let me go out, even though yesterday I had a very bad day. Mm -hmm. And so it's positive for lots of people, but not for everyone. And so by standardizing that image in commercial campaigns and in the media, we're leaving other people out and we're telling them, no, your experience is not valid because it doesn't conform with what we're showing here. And so there's been quite a bit of work done with women in particular, because lots of the work that is done on, let's say, the social aspects of cancer is done on breast cancer. And so lots of women say, well, I, I don't feel like I'm free to be exhausted like I feel. I don't feel like I'm free to complain. I don't feel like I'm free to feel as bad as I do because I have this pressure on me, not only from commercial campaigns, not only from the media, but from my loved ones who have consumed and been exposed to that discourse their whole lives. And so they now expect of me to deploy that discourse as well. So I thought it was an interesting uh, area to be looking at. Absolutely. And for me, it's really interesting because, I mean, I'm slightly out of the right age group just yet to know a lot of people with breast cancer. So the only people I know that have had a mastectomy were one person who did have breast cancer and she said, nope, lop them off. And that was her phrasing. I'm like, all right, cool, go for it. And then, of course, trans men as well. And so this is really my only context in which I've seen that at this point in my life. And so for me, this makes it really curious, you know, as I get older and as more of my friends probably will presumably have breast cancer, whether we'll see a shift in those discourses about how you can be to have breast cancer. And again, I want to include men in that as well, because as you've just highlighted yourself, these images are still about women which is really fascinating. Forgive mm. me for always having my intersectional feminist lens on. I'm like, all right, so. No, that's superb. And we haven't talked about that. Sometimes when I speak about feminism, I feel like an intruder, but it is a profoundly feminist thesis at the end of the yeah. day. It's all about questioning standardized images of women and what being a woman means. Mm -hmm. And it's not out of, out of whim that I do so. It's because breast cancer is the most represented type of cancer. When I went on social media, I found about 40 million images in total that contained the keyword cancer. And by doing extrapolation, I found that breast cancer was more than 10 times more often visualized than all other types of cancer combined. By the way, for me, feminism includes men. It's about everyone who's taking down the patriarchy. So yeah, I'm not an exclusionary feminist. Anyway, so <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Anyway. What I also find interesting about this is that obviously breast cancer is one of the most visible, most prevalent types of cancer, but it's not the only type of cancer. Yeah. But what seems to have happened is that the discourse of survivorship, which became, let's say, activated with breast cancer has, I call it, it has infiltrated all other types of cancer. So mm -hmm. all representations of any other type of cancer. And when we activate that, 
concept in our mind, right? We immediately associate it with breast cancer because there's been a commercial use of that group of illnesses to sort of portray women and in a particular way. And so it's not surprising that lots of the literature around this is written by feminist authors who question this idea and who also wonder, well, is there nothing else that we can talk about when it comes to cancer? What about people who suffer from pancreatic cancer or from lung cancer or from prostate cancer? Because when you look at the discourse of types of cancer that affect men primarily, Mm -hmm. as would be the case with breast cancer for women, what I'm seeing is that increasingly we're moving in the same direction, in the Mm -hmm. direction of creating gendered discourses. And Mm -hmm. so what I found, and I'm still to do more research on this, is that when we produce images of prostate cancer, we now produce images of men holding, literally holding hammers and ready to, you know, be strong and with a moustache and with their muscles or out in nature. And so we're going in the same direction, right? It's, and it's, well, there are plenty of reasons for that. But I, the first one is that I think when it comes to visual discourses, it's so easy and so comfortable to activate standardized discourses. And so, well, look, we're talking about men here. So let's use what's typically thought to be a man, right? Someone mm-hmm. who's strong and, and with a beard and all of that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's what we've been doing with breast cancer. And it's brought us to a point where we now question it. So why do it for other types of cancer? You know, as you were describing this image of these are men that have prostate cancer, all I could think about was dating profiles. I think the only things you missed were like holding a giant fish, right? That's apparently the uh, the pinnacle of masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, but one of the things that I've struggled with in this project is obviously the the knowledge that I'm a bit of an intruder because even though I'm doing research on cancer generally. Because lots of the work is done on breast cancer, it's something that I probably won't suffer in my life. It, it does affect men, but it's at, at a minimal rate. I haven't had any personal experiences of cancer. And so I do feel very much like an intruder there. But I've been trying to move into a realm that is a bit closer to me, which is the prospect of prostate cancer and also the whole Movember movement, which at its origin was quite closely linked to prostate cancer, but now I find has diluted that message into health issues that affect men in general. And so I think it's precisely by doing that, that we have translated it into a fairly normative discourse of what being a man is. Mm. And so I do struggle a bit with, with this. It's the, the whole point of studying social issues, right? It's they affect you and, and how you perceive <laughs> how you perceive them. And so it's quite difficult to stay neutral in that sense or impartial at least. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so now that you've come up with this method though, right, as far as analysing visual discourses via social media, what other kinds of things could we actually apply that to? Well, look, I've come up with a method. The problem is that method tomorrow probably won't work. And it's (laughs) that's the reality of of social media research. Um, Mm -hmm that constantly all of these things that we know as APIs or basically mm-hmm. the back door to enter a social media platform, mm-hmm. they're constantly closed, they're constantly locked. But if we can maintain some of it, at least the principle of how we approach it, the sequencing, mm-hmm. we could apply it to pretty much anything that has to do with how we imagine social issues. Mm-hmm. That is how we translate into photographs or into 
drawings or even into memes, things that are deeply, you know, deeply personal and that affect society as a whole. And so one of the things that I think we can apply to is how do we understand conflict? What mm -hmm. do we visually associate with conflict? And there's been quite a bit of work in the past done on trying to use photography or actually using photography in, in mediation contexts or in dialogue contexts through photo voice and all of these methods that are, I think are fascinating. Mm -hmm. And typically it's about photographing their environment and their context, their daily lives. Right? Mm -hmm. And so what that serves is that when, when you bring all of those pictures together, mm -hmm. I think you can facilitate a discussion on how similar our daily lives are mm -hmm. and how the things that we are worried about are the same, even though we come from a different social group or that, or even though we come from a different region or even though we have different ideologies. And so that, I think, facilitates discussion. It's a bit of a finding common interests. But what I find with these methods is that they are, let's say, intentional. We ask people to intentionally take photographs of their environment. And so by doing that, I think changing their mindset already, right? And they're already becoming reflective of their environment and of their context and what conflict means to them. And that has a use in itself. But what I want to see is, okay, if we're not thinking of conflict or if we're not in that mindset of let's try to transform our conflicts, then what do we imagine to be conflict or what do we imagine to be equality or peace? I think we would have to do a bit of trying to find what are the keywords that we associate with peace or with conflict and then see how we transform that into images. I think if we do that, well, then we can have a more comprehensive image of conflict as opposed to giving people cameras and then asking them to go out and taking pictures. Mm. And so if you were to use this method or a method like it, depending on what Instagram does, to analyse conflict, I mean, do you think that there's some types of social conflict or broader conflict that would be easier or more visible perhaps to analyse than others? Yeah, what we would find absolutely are images of protests, for example or social movements and activist campaigns. But again, I find that if we're picturing those things, we're already ready <laughs> to engage in a discussion with those things. Mm -hmm. And I think what, where social media excels is actually in enabling a deeper conversation, or it should enable that deeper conversation, right? Because at the end of the day, it's very polarized and we all post images that are radically different. But if we can identify how we discuss these things on our daily lives, not just when we're out protesting or not just when it's time to go vote for the elections, but actually the day to day, what sort of image do we post when we feel we are at peace and when we feel we're not in conflict? And what types of images do people who live in conflict post that relate, first of all, to the conflict itself, but also to the daily reality within that conflict? I think that would be quite interesting. Mm. And I, th I guess it would be really difficult to untangle that formativity though, right? You know, where we all pretend on Instagram that our life is fabulous and wonderful. We never feel sad as opposed to, oh, daily reality of perhaps you are in a conflict zone or perhaps you're going through something that you're choosing not to depict because it's not perhaps acceptable in some way. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges of Instagram in particular, but of all social media is that these are mediated 
spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And they're mediated by lots of different things. First of all, by the algorithms mm -hmm. that simply make some images more visible. And so mm -hmm. we become accustomed to them and we incorporate them into our own imagination. They're mediated by the people that we speak to. So when you look at the stories, for example, that someone posts for their close friends, you know, mm -hmm. where you have that little green star mm -hmm. and for the general public, those are not the same. Mm -hmm. And we're all the time becoming more and more aware of the importance of privacy. And so it's more complex to uh, disentangle what are we actually portraying or what are we actually trying to show to the world without any thinking behind it and what is actually a very planned image. Mm -hmm. And then one way that I think we can mitigate that challenge or that limitation is by looking at profiles that are not the profiles of influencers. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a challenge because mm -hmm. accessing those profiles is even more complicated because you can't access them through, let's say, the official platforms provided by Meta or by other providers. So, mm -hmm. But otherwise, what we're consuming constantly is the discourse of people who have more than 50,000 followers, which in itself doesn't speak of daily life so <laughs> absolutely absolutely and so one of the things that really strikes me as we're talking about images and conflict and who's saying them is the recent campaign by Doctors Without Borders to be more inclusive in terms of who they are showing as doctors working in different countries because typically it's been a very much a white savior complex type of situation right like Here's these white doctors going to this poor country, saving lives. Yay. And it was close to home for me because I remember my first experience, my first confrontation with what I would now call structural racism when I was a kid, right? And I've shared this with students before and I always feel very icky talking about it. But I was in primary school, so during the massacres in former Yugoslavia, and we heard about Bosnian refugees over and over and over again. There was constant drives. You know, in my, in my primary school, the other end of the world, right, there's all these drives for clothes or for canned goods or whatever for Bosnian refugees. And I remember the first time I saw video of these refugees, and again, I was really like nine years old, right, and they were white, and I remember being so shocked and confused because every image I had ever seen of a refugee, you know, it was all the sort of world vision stuff. It was always starving black children. And so I remember just being very confronted about this, like, oh, wow, this is, this is a mismatch here. Like, what's going on here? And it's incredible how powerful these images can be. And I mean, I'm glad that I've interrogated that since, right? And I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm in a white savior complex kind of zone, but when you're doing analysis of these different images in conflict, there are these really underlying discourses which say, oh, these people can be shown in this way and these people can't, or, you know, men can be shown as warriors and then women can't or whatever, or this type of violence is legitimate and part of the war or part of the conflict and this type of violence, which is, you know, assaults in camps or lowered access to medical care and therefore dying or whatever, this is not part of the conflict. And so... It just really strikes me that this subject that you've chosen to study is incredibly complex, incredibly difficult, but also incredibly important and meaningful in an era in which we, to an extent, circumscribe the types of things that we see. So 
huge kudos on that. <laughs> Thank you. No, but look, there's there's so much to discuss here. And I think people who have worked in the field of development cooperation have been struggling with this for a long time. Doctors Without Borders are an example. Save the Children are another example of organizations that have their visual guidelines and guidelines on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable when it comes to photographic practices mm-hmm. in the development cooperation world. Right. And so... When you look back at those images from the 90s and even before, absolutely, they were shock images and Mm -hmm. images that were meant to portray a specific population as receivers Mm -hmm. of development assistance and a different population as providers. And that that whole discourse has changed, thankfully, Mm -hmm. not just the visual discourse, but also the the practices of NGOs like these and how we work. But... uh, I found it interesting, and I am sure you've heard this in your country, but here in Spain, when this current phase of the Russian war on Ukraine started, one of the things that people were saying in the media and in the news in these programs where, you know, they bring several experts to talk to each other. And so one of the things they were saying is, well, these are people like us. Mm-hmm. And that struck me as, what do you mean? <laughs> people like us. <laughs> And obviously what they meant were white people who were living in, in cities like Madrid, so, so to speak, with six million inhabitants and who would go downstairs to grab a hipster coffee and suddenly they found themselves being bombarded. And so I think what that did for them and for the people speaking in that program was it brought it home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the fact that we're questioning that means that we haven't been exposed at least, or at least we don't feel like we've been exposed to conflict in our own environment, mm-hmm. or at least we don't understand what it's like, precisely because what we've been seeing for the last 30 to 40 years is conflict elsewhere, conflict affecting people who look different from us, right? Who have yeah. a different skin color, who dress differently, who live in houses that are different to ours. And at a minimum... Being able to challenge that conception means that we are now more sensitive to what Mm -hmm. conflict really means. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say, is that development cooperation has struggled with this for a long time. And we're trying to move away from what we call shock imaging. And I found that in my thesis, for example, one of the things I remember submitting a paper, a super long, boring paper, (laughs) it was a systematic, (laughs) systematic review on studies done of social media images of cancer. Right? Mm-hmm. So I took everything that was out there and tried to see, okay, what are we talking about here? And one of the conclusions that I reached was that we had to produce images that were more inclusive. And I suggested that that meant also representing the bad side of cancer. Mm-hmm. And you can exchange cancer by conflict, for instance, mm-hmm. or any other topic. And one of the reviewers told me, wouldn't we then fall back into shock images? So wouldn't we then fall back into images like those that we used with the, with the AIDS epidemic, for example, mm-hmm. where we showed people who were very ill and who were very suffering from cancer in this case. And then wouldn't we stigmatize cancer patients? And so it's a very difficult balance. And I think it's one thing that documentary photographers and photojournalists struggle with all the time is, do we show reality? Do we show reality as we interpret it? Do we translate that reality into a different discourse? And for us, in particular, who work in dialogue and mediation and this whole peace world, I always wonder, what do we do? Do Mm -hmm. we discuss and do we visualize conflict as is? Do we 
reframe it, right? Like we do with text, do we transform it into something that gives hope and that gives opportunities for the future? It's, it's difficult. I don't know where, where the answer lies, but where I think we can begin is by looking at what people think and what people imagine to be conflict. And so that's where social media comes back for me. But obviously we have to be careful as to not to take what is in social media as the absolute truth, because we also know that that is not the truth. Lots of challenges and barriers. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've got to say, I made the uh, profound mistake of reinstalling Instagram a few days ago. And apparently the algorithm thinks that I mostly want to watch skiers fall over. Um, so that's the really kind of conflict I'm going for right now, the snowboarder skier conflict. Anyway, anyway. So what confuses me a little bit is you've been doing this work on social media and images of cancer, but before this you were spending a decade or even more in peace mediation. Like what what gives? What what was the jump about? How did you go from one to the other? Did they actually meet somewhere in the middle? Uh, that's a question I've been struggling with for some time now. The nexus, the thing that connects the two for me is photography and is social media. So I've been a photographer, so to speak. I've done some professional work on photography, but mostly as a hobby my whole life since I was about 14 years old. And I've always found that pictures are extremely powerful at communicating the things that we care about at communicating hidden messages or they stay with us. I remember my, my former boss and dear friend, Auntie Herberg, with whom we did trainings and she used photographs and tried to get people to describe what they saw in those photographs and to put it in relation with peace. So photographs I've always been very, very curious about. And then social media and, and digital technologies came in. And obviously I'm a digital native. Mm -hmm. I'm already quite old, you know, God. nothing... The, the, the Gen Z are podcast. much better. You don't look old at all. You look <laughs> like you're well, quite but, old. But I'm older than my students. And, and they, they tell me about all of these platforms that they use. I'm like, huh, what is that? But anyway, and so in 2014 was the first time that I approached social media and digital technologies for peace. And I found that, yes, okay, we're doing lots with text. We we're not doing anything with images. But I became interested in this. When I started thinking of my PhD, I wanted to find a topic that was very, very easy in a sense to visualize mm -hmm. and that at the same time, while being very easy to visualize, was very non-visual because mm -hmm. cancer is not something you can photograph immediately, mm -hmm. that you can't photograph cancer as such unless you go into the body and then take a picture, right? That might be and a bit so, difficult with the ethics board, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm probably, they probably won't let me do that. And so I thought, well, let me find a topic where I can find polarization quite easily without going into politics or without conducting a case study like I would with if I studied, for example, images of war in Ukraine or images of refugees or this type of thing. So I thought, well, let me use that case. Let me build a method and then let me see if I can bring this back into the peace building world. Will I be able to do so? I don't know. Will I continue working on cancer? For sure I will. But I'm already seeing opportunities there. Let's take a bit of a pivot then and talk a bit about technology and mediation more broadly, because I know that this is something you've actually written about before in the book, Rethinking Peace Mediation. So when you're talking about technology and peace mediation, what technologies beyond our Instagram feed are we talking about? You know, I, I remember in 2016, I gave a talk 
I was young and naive and I knew nothing. Still know nothing, but <laughs> even less back then. And um, I remember participating in the Build Peace Conference, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. conference that happens every year on the nexus between technology, peace and arts. And we were having a group discussion and there was an engineer there. And I kept talking about technology, technology, technology. And he stopped me at one point and he said, what do you mean? I thought to myself, what do you mean? Rude. (laughs) And he said, no, but what do you mean? Are you talking about digital technology? So cell phones or websites, or are you talking about, he told me water wells, for example, those are technology. So what do you actually mean? And I found that my understanding of technology was so limited. I only meant websites, basically, (laughs) or web applications. And it's typically what we talk about, right? What I mean, or what I wrote in that chapter that I had the chance to contribute was about digital technology and specifically about technologies that enable communication between people in a, in a very rapid and very immediate way. What we call ICTs, informational communication technologies. But do I extend that then to satellites or, you know, infrastructures and so on? Mm-hmm. No, because I don't know how to even begin thinking about that. I mean, essentially, applications like Instagram, like WhatsApp, like WeChat, Signal, Telegram, all of these things. Okay, so you've clarified then for me what these technologies were that you're talking about. So how can we use things like apps or like websites in peace mediation and conflict work? There are different phases in the conflict mediation process or the dialogue process that we can use them for. And the first is analyzing the context and understanding what are we dealing with. And their information technologies are crucial because they're a very quick way to put your finger on the pulse on what's going on. I remember doing that in Ukraine in 2018 with a reforms process that was ongoing at the time, trying to get an understanding of how people felt about that reforms process and what they thought were the topics where the government at the time needed to put more effort. So it's a very quick way. It's not going to give you the full answer, though. You're just going to get a quantitative answer on what's on social media. And we all know that on social media, we find two things. We find lots and lots of content, which is extremely polarized and increasingly more so. But it's a point where you can start. It's also a very good tool. I think these information and communication technologies are great tools to communicate progress when it is reasonable to do so. Now, we know that it's not always reasonable to do so and not advisable. But here, we also have to negotiate with our own processes how much can we disclose and how much can we not communicate to the public when they're expecting us to make progress. And in there, negotiators and mediators and mediation experts could tell you, well, here we can release a little piece of information, we can share some pictures, but at least establishing that bridge between the people who are meant to benefit from the mediation process Mm -hmm. and those who are spearheading it. And at the same time, thirdly, it's about collecting impressions and collecting knowledge from people and including them into that conversation. I've seen that done in Colombia, for example, with a project that was called La Conversación Más Grande del Mundo, the largest conversation on earth, where it was a fantastic website where people were asked questions that were fundamental to the peace process, and they were meant to contribute their ideas, not through a voting system as such, but a system of pros and cons of every proposal and then developing on those. But it was a great way for people to feel involved, but it it can also go out of hand and where do you set the limits? 
But I would say then collecting a quick image of what's going on, communicating progress, and then getting feedback from the different constituencies are at least three ways in which information and communication technologies can be helpful. In the commercial mediation world, there's increasing interest in online dispute resolution. So the process is actually going online and also in the use of AI and machine learning to actually facilitate. Do you think that these are technologies that we would ever see in peace mediation? Yeah, I'm sure there there are people who have been working on this. I could think of Andreas Hürblinger probably has looked into this, uh, Martin Wellish as well. I have to say I'm a bit of an agnostic when it comes to artificial intelligence. As a professor, I struggle with artificial intelligence now every day because our students use it to (laughs) produce their papers. And it's incredibly powerful. But I think if we understand that mediation and dialogue are profoundly human processes that need that one-to-one, and it's one of the things that we've struggled with in the last two years with the whole pandemic and virtual facilitation and virtual sessions, I wonder how can artificial intelligence help us maintain or strengthen that human aspect of the mediation process and the dialogue process? And I'm still not sure. I I don't know how they could do it. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I I mean, I've done some training with AI as well. And yeah, I'm very, I'm very deeply cynical, even if it's using commercial mediation, because there's this saying that garbage in, garbage out. Right. And so AI is trained on all of this data. And if there's biases or problems in the data, then it's actually replicated in the solutions that AI suggests. It's like with chat GPT, you know, so people have started putting all these cynical articles up about going, oh, here's all this garbage that it spat out. It was very authoritative in tone, but it means absolutely nonsense. And so I am concerned that we'll see that kind of thing actually in mediation itself. But it sounds like you're not too alarmed about it for peace mediation, at least just yet, because of the perhaps profound human component. Yeah, well, there's there's a fundamental truth in artificial intelligence, and that's that the more we use it, the better it will get. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, for example, I had a colleague whose name is Juan, who worked on training models to detect ships on the sea or to detect anything. And I think when the content of what you're working on is very static, or at a minimum, it is very identifiable, then I'm sure artificial intelligence can be trained perfectly well to identify those items. But if we understand that conflict is so, it's based on perception, and that Mm -hmm. those perceptions change constantly, and that those perceptions depend on a series of basic needs that we all have, but not only basic needs, but psychological needs and emotional needs that are constantly going to be changing. I just think artificial intelligence is probably going to be playing catch up all the time to try and get to a point where they can understand conflict. We don't understand conflict Mm -hmm. um, at all. And so we're just trying to deal with it (laughs) as best as we can. But one thing that they probably can do is work on making communications more sensitive or making communications more attuned to some of the principles that we have in nonviolent communications, for instance, or to comply, let's say, with UN principles for mediation processes, this kind of thing, they can probably help us with. And they can make that process quicker or at least easier for everyone, right? And I'm just thinking out loud here, but a potential project could be trying to get And I think I've seen something like this. 
trying to get a, an artificial intelligence to reinterpret a piece of communication and to transform it into nonviolent communication or into non-biased communication, that type of thing. We can look that up because I'm sure there is something like that. I feel like I could use that. <laughs> you know, Miguel, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? Look, thank you so much for having me. That was fun. I think LinkedIn is probably the best <laughs> best place. Mm-hmm. I do have a website, but I keep changing the domain all the time because I'm always very <laughs> you know, insecure as to what it should be. But they can find me on LinkedIn by using my whole name, Miguel Varela Rodriguez. And hopefully I'll be the first to pop up. But if there's someone else, then maybe they are interested as well. (laughs) I like this. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks again for joining me. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Chipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.